And yes, I'm well aware tonight of the event that's happening later on after the service. So as tradition, I've made sure that this is extra long tonight to just kind of take that off of the table. We'll see what the Lord does with it. We have, a, again, I was actually going to be preaching from a much longer passage, and maybe I should have stuck with that, but um, I, I divided it up, not because, please understand, because there's anything important going on after the service, but um, as I began to study this, I realized we've got to, got to take this a little slower and, and keep, um, divide this up a little bit more so that we can investigate this and have better understanding um, of this passage. So to Romans 14 tonight, and we're just going to be looking at verses 13 to 19. The series is the spirit guided conscience. And <clears throat> I hope this has been a help to you. I've received a lot of um, feedback and, and questions and may able to answer and, and a lot of interaction with you all. It's been very, very helpful, and I appreciate that. This has really been helpful for me, and I continue to learn as, as I work through this. One of the things, I've talked with a few of you about this, that I've learned is to be very careful going through this passage. There's so many different interpretations, even among men that I respect, and um, scholars, and commentaries that I read, that I really have had to make sure, okay, Go to the text, read the text, and make sure um, that I am following what's most important here is, is what the text is saying and not the opinions, because there, and there's lots of reasons I won't get into tonight why there are a lot of different opinions. Um, but one of the things I think will help us is that Paul does in this chapter make some general statements to both sides as he's addressing both the weak and the strong. And sometimes that those statements get lost and they get applied to one side or the other. And I'll explain this tonight, why I think that it's to both sides um, and general statements that are important that both sides need to listen to and understand. And if you've learned nothing else, well, there's, hopefully you've learned a lot from this, but the conscience certainly is important, isn't it? And it must be understood correctly and it must be reckoned with. We can't just let these issues of conscience just kind of slide and just kind of, well, do whatever. And whether I harm my conscience or not, it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, uh, not even sure why I have a conscience or what this is. No, we, it's, it's um, talked about in God's word. We need to understand it. And the biblical data of the conscience, again, leads us to two important principles of the conscience. We've seen already God is Lord over our conscience. And that is supreme above all else. Jesus Christ gets to tell us what to do when it comes to these conscience issues. But he will lead us in these conscience issues in individual ways. And the other side of this, then, the second principle is that while you're working through these conscience issues, your conscience should be obeyed. Paul is going to show us that clearly in the verse we're going to see tonight, verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So it's sin for that person that has the constant sensitivity that it's unclean or not appropriate for them to do. 
1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, 9 through 13. This is the sister passage, in a sense, to Romans 14. And Paul makes this clear. And again, we'll get back to this. I'm just briefly touching on this to make this point. He says, Paul says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, that's very similar to the verse we saw last week in our passage in Romans 14. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Um, Conscience issues, when people stumble over their conscience, it is a very damaging, a very grievous thing. And so our conscience, no matter where it's at in being attuned to where it should be, it should be followed and obeyed until more information, until more understanding comes. So, Paul begins Romans 14, talking about conscience issues, the weak versus the strong. But then last week, in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at even a more important principle that governs all of this. And that is our responsibility with our own choices that we must examine the choices, our conscious choices that each of us that we're making personally. And even though everyone difference differs, excuse me, in combinations of these conference conscience sensitivities, all must subject their conscience issues to the Lord. And we saw that last week, earlier look at verse at verse 5 and 6. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And that is through the Holy Spirit's work in your life and you becoming more fully informed on the issue and knowing what Scripture says. The one who observes a day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, and since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks and gives thanks to God. That is the overarching principle. That is the goal where we all want to be. In essence, I think Paul is saying here, ultimately, we want to move beyond this weak and, and strong thing. There's room for the weak to grow, and I think there's room here for the strong to have a better understanding of why they are strong and their position is strong within scripture. And I think the reason I say that is because when they really understand, I think it will humble them and they'll be less tempted to despise the weaker brother. So I think there's growth here for both and that we should be striving towards being each fully convinced that is the best uh, goal. And that's what we all want to strive for. And I hope that made sense last week. Through the Spirit's guidance of our conscience, we want to be fully convinced and striving toward that. But that takes a lifetime, right? I mean, just we've gone through various examples of issues, and folks, there are only a few. We could continue to talk and talk about multitude of different conscience issues. These things take time, and Paul understands that, and God understands that. So as we are working toward being fully convinced in each of these areas of our conscience, we need to learn how to get along in unity in the meantime. 
as we work through these things. And that's what Paul is trying to, again, tonight, bring us, help give us further understanding. He's going to show us tonight that it involves pursuing peace with each other as we progress in our spiritual walk, that we should be ultimately looking to be at peace with one another and helping each other to grow in discipleship. But especially, he's going to make the emphasis tonight in responding with forbearance toward the weaker brethren. The weaker brother that has the weaker position that's not fully informed, but has that conscience sensitivity. Paul's going to use him as an example tonight of the strong forbearing with the weak. You know, that really is unnatural in our world history and world philosophy and, and politics in our world today. The weak, although the world talks a good game about how they want to help the weak and bring them along. It's actually a lot of indication that um, the world, the world system under Satan, wants to dispose, discard of the weak. You certainly think of the, of the um, philosophies behind evolution. You know, the, the strongest, the fit, the strongest, um, or the fittest survive, uh, the strongest win out, and we just kind of get rid of the weaker ones and let them evolve out of existence. I have a book at home, and you know I'd like to read about history, and it's called A War, War Against the Weak, a very provocative title, and it is a fascinating but at the same time dark and disturbing book about a philosophy that I think still is prevalent in our world today, but unfortunately was very prevalent even in our own country in the first part of the last century in the 1900s. Many of you may have heard of this. It's called eugenics. And eugenics was a real thing. Uh, it was people that, uh, because of the philosophy of evolution, began looking around them. And eugenics has the idea that there are the weaker and the stronger people. And we and the weaker kind of just drag are a drag on the stronger. And there's lots of descriptions of who makes the stronger. And really, this eugenics is very racist, among other things, but it was very prominent. And those that had were considered to have um, mental conditions and different things were considered among the weak. There were some races that were considered the weaker races. And so uh, people were um, being categorized and kind of herded into different um, stations and categories in life. It's actually one of the things that the founder, you know, Pan Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, it was one of the main platforms that she followed and it's why she came up with Planned Parenthood to kind of weed out in her mind the weaker and help the stronger and of course that delved into abortion and, and all of that it really started of this whole thing about getting rid of the weaker people and actually again uh, you can uh, this book makes it clear that even uh, the Germans and Adolf Hitler himself um, were attracted by this eugenics movement and the seeds of that caused him to move in the direction that he did. And of course, we all know the, the horrors of where he went with that. But the whole thing is, let's get the weak out of the way. Let's, let's um, help the strong and remove the weak. Eugenics, fascism, other philosophies. Well, folks, Christianity should be the exact opposite. And that's what Paul is saying here. Christianity moves toward the weak in concern and love toward them. We don't leave them behind. We want to see them build up. 
the exact opposite of any kind of worldly philosophy in that way that wants to remove the weak. We want to help and strengthen the weak. And Paul makes that clear as well. Romans 13, or Romans 14, and let's just read verses 13 through 19 tonight. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother, when we say, or sister, is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Lord, give us understanding tonight. Father, first of all, we're so thankful that you love not only the strong, but the weak. And you have a very tender spot for the weak and for the humble. And that you have provided for all, the weak and the strong, to experience salvation through faith in Christ. Thank you that we don't have to follow the cruel mandates of the world and getting rid of the weak and kind of moving them out of the way but that we can show them love and care and concern. Lord, in the broader spectrum of this, let our church and let your church, the church of Jesus Christ, be more known for its spiritual growth and for its fruitful ministry than it is for its individual idiosyncrasies. Help us as a local church to be known, most importantly, for peace, unity, and growth in discipleship within our midst. That is our desire, Lord. So give us more understanding. Help us to be in unity through these things as we all continue to grow in our understanding of your word. And we all desire to be more fully convinced of how you're leading us in these conscience issues and then confidently go forward, ready to be in peace and unity with each other and um, be a light to a dark world. Prepare us for that, Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight's message is called Pursuing Peace and Edification. That's uh, the word that the King James uses for the end of verse 19. I thought that was appropriate. And that is the goal of our church in these conscience issues and any church is that we want to pursue, be passionate about peace and building each other up, discipleship. So first of all, we want to see that conscience issues should not hinder others. As important as they are, they shouldn't be a hindrance or a stumbling block or a trap for other people. Conscience issues should not hinder other believers. And let's look again at verse 13. And this Paul is stating another general principle. Let's be clear on this. Before he addresses the relationship between the strong and the weak. Now he goes to a more general principle about being a stumbling block or a hindrance to other believers. In other words, he's speaking in verse 13 to the strong and the weak. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block 
or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, if you'll remember before, he used the word judgment to describe what the weak tended to do toward the strong. So we might think here, ah, he's going to address the weak and tell them how they're supposed to act in regards to the strong. But actually, the issue here, as we get to verse 14, he's, he uses an example, something that he's telling the strong and how they're supposed to respond to the weak. And so therefore, that tells me that in verse 13, he's moved into judgment as a more general category for both sides. Because even the strong, when they despise the weak's position, let's be honest, that is a form of judgment. They're judging them that they're just too weak and, oh, come on, get with it. If you were just stronger like me and you didn't worry about all these things all the time, then you could be involved in these things and you wouldn't be such a drag on my freedoms. And that's judging. So Paul is in general statement here saying both sides don't pass judgment on one another any longer. Remember the goal. We want to be fully convinced. But until that point, make sure that you don't put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another believer. Um, that first two words, their stumbling block has the idea of something that someone will trip over and was used in the Greek, the Greek word for, for laying something that someone would stumble over or could stumble and get grievously hurt. We've seen that even this week and even today with the ice, right? Very slippery, very easy to stumble. And we know that stumbling um, can cause us to get hurt. And we know that's very serious. And so that's kind of the idea here. Don't cause anything or put anything in front of another believer that's going to cause them to stumble or trip up. Or really, this came to be known, described as a, as a description of giving occasion for another brother to sin, to cause them to sin through their conscience and through um, something that you did. And the other one, hindrance, has the idea of ensnaring or trapping and it came to have the idea of even as something as dire as ruining another person, coming to ruin through um, what another believer would, done, would do. So, folks, uh, these are very serious things that we want to be careful of. If we really are in unity and love of our brothers, we don't want to be a, set a stumbling block or a trap for someone to get involved in sin or to sin against their conscience. And Paul's saying, um, as we continue to work together and work through and grow in our spiritual knowledge of these things, be careful with each other. Don't cause another brother to stumble. Then he gives an example here. That's a warning to the strong and, or an example to the strong of how to handle the weaker brother, verses 14 through 16. And we're going to see here our freedoms should not grieve other believers in particular. And Paul gets back to this um, example of eating. And he makes it a little more specific now than he had done before. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in, it, in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, See what he's talking about there. You are no longer walking in love. When he uses that word unclean, now he's being a little more specific. He did not use that word before when he was talking about food. It was more of a general thing. 
And now he gets a more specific example. One of the ways that the background does help in this is that we know that the New Testament church before communion, the Lord's Supper, would have what they would call sometimes a love feast or they would have a dinner together and they would bring food. And it does seem that there was a possibility here that Paul might have had in mind. Again, he doesn't say for certain here but that people were bringing food that other people looked at and thought, no, that's unclean. I shouldn't, I can't eat that. And to watch somebody else eat that is still one of my conscience sensitivities that bothers me. Um, the weak person has this conscience sensitivity about maybe Paul has in mind here, these Jewish food regulations recently, it was still recent that Peter received the vision about what foods that he could now eat when for thousands of years, the law of God told Jewish people, you can't eat pork, you can't eat this, and you can't eat that. And so we can understand there were still some sensitivities to this. And so a brother brings some barbecued pork to the dinner or whatever, and he's enjoying that. And the brother that's still has a constant sensitivity about some of those food is watching him. And man, that looks really good. And all I brought was vegetables, and my wife made a tuna fish casserole. It's okay, but it doesn't look as good as that. And there was a temptation for them to want what in their conscience they shouldn't have. And Paul says um, that, and he reminds us in verse 14, that the actual truth of it is, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. How do we know that? Well, again, go back to what God said to Paul, to Peter, in that vision. God made it clear that those um, conditions, those ceremonial unclean foods, uh, were no longer in effect or, or no longer a constraint for God's people. And, and Paul knew that as well. That's clear. So this and so Paul is saying here unequivocally that the food that these people are eating are not ceremonially unclean because Jesus has made that clear. But for those that still don't have a full understanding of this and are bothered by it, guess what? It is wrong for them until God works in their conscience. It still is something that they can sin by doing. Well, what do we do? Well, Come on, hurry up, man. Get fully convinced in your conscience. I, I want to eat what food I want to eat. Paul says, nope, it's not what you get to do. You have patience with the weaker person. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And it's interesting, this word grieved is, we think of grieved as just kind of really irritated or, or bothered, right? But this Greek word actually describes severe inner turmoil. I mean, this person is worked up and concerned and bothered by this. This, this is doing real damage to him. And Paul says, if we're going to hold on to our freedom at the expense of hurting a fellow believer, now we are sinning. Why is that? We're breaking a commandment, right? One of the basic ones. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hold on to my freedom. Cause my brother this kind of consternation and inner turmoil. I can't say that I'm loving him. 
I can't say that I'm walking in the commandments and doing right. He says, you are no longer walking in love, and that's a sin. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. It's not loving to continue the action you have freedom of conscience about to the literally spiritual detriment of another. And it's interesting here. Um, We're going to see next week. We don't have time to get to this tonight. But in verse 22, Paul does actually acknowledge that the strong is in the right position. Actually, he's already done that. But he'll say the strong is actually has received a blessing from God in the freedom conscience freedom that God has given him. And Paul will also say that person is not barred from enjoying freedom on that particular issue since the Spirit has led them in that way, except when it comes to a conflict with a weaker brother's conscience. You see, the Lord will give us all different sensitivities. There are some things that some of us will feel the sense of freedom to do in our conscience that others will not. And Paul is not saying here, well, just don't ever get involved in that or do that because you're going to bother a brother. No, he's saying, and we're going to see next week, enjoy that freedom, but don't enjoy it when you're going to cause another brother to stumble. And really, how many times is that? How much, how long, how many, how often are you going to be with this brother during church services, maybe to get together to eat once in a while? Folks, we get pretty selfish sometimes about these conscience issues. Well, I should be able to do it whenever I want. Well, really? You can't just come to church and worship for a few hours and put that liberty aside for just a couple hours. You can't um, invite someone over during the week at the most. Maybe you see this individual three to four hours of your week, and you can't put your own freedom aside for showing love for them. And they just, because they were so focused on what they wanted that they didn't see how unloving they were being to everyone else. And we can do that on a variety of issues. The main thing is to show love and be in unity together. And that may mean that sometimes we don't get to partake in that freedom that God has given to us at times. And yet we need to still, for the sake of the other brother, put aside that. Why? Because look at this um, in verse 15, again, at the end of verse 15, Paul uses very strong words here. Do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. It's a very strong word. And it can mean, um, well, it certainly means something that is deeply destructive, that would cause guilt on the part of the weak. Um, At its best, let me put it this way, uh, at its best, This is something that would cause a person great grief and guilt. But at its worst, it does seem Paul is really saying here that one could actually fall away from the faith and experience eternal destruction because um, they were hindered or their conscience was hurt in this matter. And so that obviously becomes even a more serious thing. Um, and it's something that we would never want to do. Someone actually becoming frustrated and actually turning away from the faith because their conscience was injured in this way. Folks, let's all agree that would be an unthinkable consequence of someone who Jesus gave his life for. 
Paul's being very clear. He's saying, one, that Christ died. You won't be loving toward them and put aside your freedom for just a little bit of time so that we know for certain that this would never happen. It's someone whom Christ died for. We ought to show the kind of love that Jesus has shown to them and be willing to give up these rights. Um, We'll get back to that in just a minute, but let's look at verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And Paul is saying here that the spirit-guided freedom of conscience to do something is a good thing. He says, don't let what you regard as good. It is a good thing to have freedom of conscience in particular areas. And he's going to, again, next week say it's actually a blessed thing of God. But one should not be give opportunity to destroy or to hurt a weaker brother or for that believer to speak ill of that good thing that God has blessed in the conscience. And also, I think he's also pointing to the fact that the world, when they see us squabbling and arguing over these conscience issues, it hurts our testimony with the world and they speak evil of us and they see us quarreling together. How many examples do we know of of churches that unfortunately in, in communities have an example of disagreeing and being hypocritical and fighting and not getting along? That doesn't help promote the wonderful grace of Jesus and the gospel when people see us doing that. Better to be willing to put aside that freedom for a little while in order not to have this fighting and quarreling. Now, this admonition of Paul speaks to a situation. It, let's, let's admit, this weak believer that he's referring to in this example, I don't think so much in the first example, but certainly this example, this, he, this believer has severe sensitivities to an issue that would cause them great damage if they acted against their own conscience. Um, and really, if you think back upon it, can't we all? I mean, I certainly can think of things when I was a young person that I had a misunderstanding about when it came to whether I could be involved or not, and I did something or got involved in something, and my conscience was damaged, and it hurt, and it caused me great grief. And probably all of us can think when we were young young Christians or we had an issue where we did something we weren't sure that God would be pleased with, and our conscience just bothered us and grieved us. And then eventually, maybe as we learned more information as we studied God's word more, we realized, you know what? I didn't have to be quite so concerned about that, but at the time I didn't know. And it's at those sensitive, those very vulnerable times that we have to be especially careful with believers, not just, oh, come on, man, just strengthen up. Just, just, you know, get tough. This is okay to do. No, work with people, be loving toward them. Have further growth to experience. Be gentle. Sometimes, for some of us, it's hard to be gentle and careful with people. It just is. Some of our personalities, we just, that's the last thing we're concerned about. Just come on, man, just, just do it and, and get right with God and, and just see it the way I see it. And does Jesus do that? No, Jesus is gentle and lowly and careful with us. And so that is the example that we need to be with others. Another important point here, 
Paul is speaking, as you continue to read through this, and this is important to point out, he's speaking of individual Christian relationships within the church. He says individually here, he's talking about your brother, another particular individual. In each of these illustrations, it is um, our relationships with another person in particular. If he's not referring to the whole church as, in, in, as a whole in addressing one believer, but each of us individually in our relationships to each other. And, as, and just continue to acknowledge that here as we continue to study this passage. Um, it, Paul is clear here about the individual relationships. Let me ask you one thing here. And, and what he's just brought up, have you ever known an example of someone who was so worked up about a conscience issue that they literally left the faith? Is that even possible? I thought about that. And honestly, I, I can't really put my finger on too many incidences where I can say that I've personally experienced this. I've thought of a few. I'll just tell them to you real briefly here. Uh, if you have some that you think of, you can come and tell me after the, the service tonight. I'd like to hear of those. Um, but it bothered his conscience. Maybe you can think of a situation like this as well. It's kind of strange to us. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Could go you ahead. clarify leaving the faith uh, as in losing your salvation, never having it in the first place, or just um, like you mentioned, carnal Christian. Could you still say more? Yeah, it's and that's good. I'm glad you, you brought that up because that was on my list here to address. Really, what is this referring to then if we're talking about eternal destruction? Well, from what we know of Scripture, then we have to put this all into place. Ultimately, this would be someone, if we're talking about that they're headed for eternal destruction, that they it was a it was a not a sincere profession, and they were not saved at all. But could there have been an opportunity to redirect this person by just being careful of their conscience sensitivities and showing them that maybe they really weren't a Christian after all and, and, and sharing? In other words, instead of arguing with that individual about uh, a right that the church or that person had, maybe there should have been more thought to presenting the gospel more clearly and working with them and, and helping them along. I think that's, that helps explain I think also, though, this does also represent um, someone who is a believer, but is greatly damaged and hurt in their spiritual walk. So I think both here. But this language of destroy, really, it, it's so severe that I think we do have to take into account that there is one um, who, because of a conscience issue, even though it was an insincere profession, it helps kind of them along maybe in a faster trajectory out of the faith and a rejection of God altogether. Does that help? Yeah, there's, it, it's, it's hard with what Paul is saying here to really fully explain or, or understand. That's why we have to go to other passages of scripture as well to remind us. But I think we can all agree, folks, that Paul's talking about a very serious thing, Right. And even this, even if we can't each of us come up with an example of a particular individual, this would have happened. Let's put it this way, then. Let's say that we, we can't come up with any example at all of someone who, because of a conscience issue, would leave the faith. We know it's possible. How do we know it's possible? Because Paul says it is. 
The Bible says it is, right? So do we really want to take the chance that we might hurt someone in that way? It's unthinkable. No, of course we don't want to do that. So be very careful with the strong. And when you perceive someone that has a weaker conscience than you, treat them gently. Because it's a matter of showing love to the weaker person. The world says, ah, forget them, leave them behind. You know, you can't let them hinder your life and hinder what you want to do from having a good time. But that's not the love of Christ. Jesus says, no, help them up, help them along, show them my love with the weaker folks. Verses 17 through 19, conscience issues shouldn't overshadow fruitful service. This is also an important part of this. Fruitful ministry service should be what defines us. Ultimately, as we read these last few verses, what we need to understand, and now we get back to a general principle again, and we're going to see this, that we should not be defined, we should not be known, most importantly, for our different conscience sensitivities, but we should be known as people of faith that are growing in our faith and experiencing spiritual growth. Here's a general principle, backing away or or, um, opening this up farther than just the specific example that Paul has given here. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here's a broader principle about the kingdom of God related to all believers. What is the kingdom of God and those that are a part of the kingdom of God? What should they be identified? How should they be identified? By righteousness, by peace, unity, by joy, not by what we eat or don't drink. No, people ought to look at a church and see spiritual growth taking place in unity. What does Paul mean by righteousness there? Well, certainly um, the righteousness of Christ that allows us salvation, we think of automatically as we are given, we talked about this morning, Christ's righteousness, and able um, then to experience eternal joys of heaven because of that. But I think in practical context here, Paul is referring to a righteousness of conduct that we can have. In other words, a moral conduct that we can experience through the power of the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit working in our life, we can have righteous conduct in our lives. And that goes back to, by the way, what we talked about on those moral issues. We see here that Paul's just not saying, oh, if you don't think you need to obey that moral issue, God's commandment, then just don't make it a big issue to the weak. No, When he says righteousness there, he's pointing out that that one of the marks of a citizen of the kingdom of God is that they live in a right way. They obey God's commands, right? That ought to be an identifier of a child of God, but also peace and unity and joy of the Holy Spirit. That is what ought to be apparent to the world. In other words, let's put it this way. Our issues of conscience, whatever they are, should not be our main identifier. Folks, don't we want to be known rather for our righteous conduct, for our peace and unity, for our joy, than for individual conscience sensitivities? The work of the Spirit should be more evident 
in us than our reactions to everybody else's sensitivities. And we all know probably of churches, we're not going to get into a big gossip session here, but you think even of the churches in our area, what do they tend to be known for? There are even, I'll just be very careful about this, do we even want to be known as a church that as people talk about them, the number one thing that they mention first is that they use a particular version? Or do we want to be known, as, G, as Paul makes clear here, of our right conduct and our unity and our joy? How do you think people view Village Chapel Baptist Church? I don't know. I hope it's for the right reasons. I would be very grieved to find out that we were known for some sort of strange thing, or uh, certainly I don't think we're known for arguing, and we're kind of a small church, and we're praying more people would uh, join our church, but we want to make sure as we're small that we are being known for the right things and not the wrong things. That needs to be most important. Is the work of the Spirit evident in Village Chapel Baptist Church? Or are we arguing over particulars of conscience? And it seems to indicate here, as a side note, that in the future kingdom, we will not be dealing with conscience differences. That'll all be cleared out. But it's a current age necessity that we have to deal with these things. Well, verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Paul is stressing here that those who are characterized for their spiritual growth that he just described in verse 17 are pleasing to God and also have good approval with men. Those that are known for righteous living, for peace and joy, when we're known for those things, that's pleasing to God. And it's a good reputation with other people. Is he primarily refer referring to the unsaved world? Probably not, because the unsaved world, especially in this age, doesn't seem to be too concerned or care too much about our righteousness and our peace and our joy. I think more he's talking about other believers, even those weaker believers, that as they look toward us, they know that they will not sense judgment ultimately, but a sense of love and care and joy and, and, right, and, and a concern for righteousness that all believers can look at and say, that's good. That's a healthy church. That's maybe a church I want to be a part of because they see these good aspects of the kingdom going on in that church. Don't let your conscience issues be the aspects of your Christian walk that you are most defined by. But let it be the righteousness, peace, and joy. So fruitful ministry service is what I want to define me ultimately, and what I want our church to be defined by. But also, unity and discipleship should be what defines us, verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace, that really has the idea of unity there, and for mutual upbuilding, building each other up, enabling spiritual growth, that's discipleship. And that goes back to a theme that we've been talking about for many years now discipling each other, helping each other to grow in unity together. Paul is pointing out here, folks, what should our greatest spiritual passion be as individuals and as a church family? What should our greatest pursuit be? What makes for peace within those conscience issues, unity within our local church body, and what enables spiritual growth and discipleship 
within our church body. So as we conclude tonight, yes, we must strive to be fully convinced. That's our goal in all issues of our conscience that is operating from an informed spirit-guided position. Our goal is to be convinced in our conscience, guided by the spirit of the position that we're supposed to take. And yes, for the strong, conscience freedom is a blessed thing. It's a wonderful thing. But no, we must not let that be the defining aspect of our Christian walk. What is better to be defined by? The fruit of the Spirit. Don't we, in the end, rather than all of our idiosyncrasies and conscience sensitivities, as important as they are, I hope you've understood that conscience sensitivities are important. We need to be careful of those. Folks, I want to be defined by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, patience, love. If we're squabbling and arguing with each other, we don't get, we don't, we're not defined by these things to a world that needs to see this, to see the love of Christ and the unity and the peace of Christ working within us. Let's pray that Village Chapel Baptist Church is most defined and known for our peace, for our spiritual discipleship and our growth and our love of Christ shown to the humility. At the same time that we are gentle and that we are careful as with each other as we're growing in the Lord and with our conscious sensitivities. Father, thank you for this important passage. Thank you for giving us understanding in it and help us to move forward. Lord, help us to love the weak. And Lord, we certainly would never want to push someone that may be on, on the verge from our perspective of leaving the faith. Um, you know, in the end, who is saved and who is not. But help us to be aware of those that are teetering and be gentle with them, careful with them, giving the gospel to them, presenting that rather than arguing over small things. And let us be known as a church that proclaims Christ, that loves each other, and that is growing in spiritual, um, in our spiritual relationship with Christ. Lord, that is what we want to be defined. Help us as Village Chapel Baptist Church to have that kind of testimony in our community. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.